Good morning. Good morning and welcome to chapel this morning. Jesus said, Come to me, all ye that are weary and carrying heavy laddens. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon your shoulders. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble of heart. Come to me, here you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. This morning, amidst the increasing stress of school, we invite you to come. To come to Jesus to worship, to take some deep breaths, to leave your worries and your homework at the door. We invite you to come and find your rest in God. Let's open and worship this morning with a song of prayer. Let all who are thirsty. Join me in prayer. 
God of love and of mercy, be present to us here this morning. In the midst of a lot of stress and busyness, we come to you seeking rest, renewal, love. As we worship you this morning, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to seek your guidance and your wisdom in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. My name is Tamara Schantz, and I serve as one of the campus pastors here at Goshen College. And we are very happy and excited to welcome a number of visitors with us this morning, um, prospective students and their families. Welcome. We're very happy to have you with us, and we hope you have a good visit today. We also have a number of guests who are with us, um, some alum and some others, who are with us for a conference tomorrow um, called Resistance, um, taking a stand against war from 1960s to today. And um, so we're very happy to have them with us as well, speaking in some classes. As you may also notice, we are toned down light-wise today. Um, in response to Glenn Gilbert's convocation on, important convocation on Monday, connecting our use of electricity with the mining and burning of coal, I thought we would continue the practice. So um, let me know what you think as we go along. And um, yeah, hopefully we can continue to uh, conserve energy and do our best to care for God's creation. This morning, John D. Roth, one of our history professors, will be speaking with us on our theme for the year, Making Peace with God. His message this morning is titled, Making Peace with Jesus, Confessions of a Christ-Centered College. So we look forward to his words for us um, after we sing a few more songs. So I invite you to stand as we sing God of Wonders.
Hear these words from Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude must be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Christ, though in the image of God, didn't deem equality with God something to be clung to, but instead became completely empty, took on the form of a slave, born into human condition, found in the likeness of a human being. Jesus was thus humbled, obediently accepting death, even death on a cross. Because of this, God highly exalted Christ and gave Jesus the name above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee must bend. In the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth, every tongue proclaim to the glory of God. Jesus Christ reigns over all. Good morning. I want to add my welcome to the many visitors who are with us this morning. I hope that you uh, uh, enjoy your visit to Goshen College, and we would love to number you in our community next fall. In August of uh, 2002, uh, some 50 or 60 Goshen College uh, faculty and staff and administrators and board members and pastors and alumni uh, gathered at Mary Lee to talk about the future of the college. At the time, we were facing uh, some significant challenges. Uh, enrollment had been uh, slowly declining. Students uh, were critical. Uh, some faculty were raising questions about the coherence of our mission. Were we really part of a, a shared undertaking? Did we know what that was? For several days, we asked some very basic questions. What was at the core of our identity and what was peripheral. The questions were, uh, the conversations were intense, um, but by the second or third day, a few themes had begun to emerge and those themes became part of a broader campus-wide discussion. And out of that process emerged what we now call the core values. Now it could be that the five core values matter more to uh, faculty and administrators than they do to students. But in the years since 2002, they have brought a welcome focus and clarity to our identity. They appear in view books. They're the subject of fall convocations. They're emblazoned on the banners uh, outside around Schrock Plaza, and they show up in many syllabi. I think most of us are generally committed to the core values. We can talk freely, even enthusiastically, about what it means to be global citizens, passionate learners, compassionate peacemakers, and servant leaders. But in my experience, the core value that has been the most challenging to embrace is the one at the very center of the circle, the core of the core. Christ-centered. I may be wrong, but it seems to me that over the past seven years, we've been somewhat tentative, maybe even squeamish, about the phrase Christ-centered. Some of the reasons for that ambivalence are understandable. We know that 
a diverse campus like ours inevitably includes students who are not professing Christians. We have Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists in our community, as well as students who claim no faith whatsoever. People of all backgrounds could probably agree on the virtues of passionate learning, the argument goes, but it seems ungracious, needlessly exclusive, to put too much emphasis on being Christ-centered. Others uh, may wince at the language of Christ-centered because it seems so open-ended. Uh, in the smorgasbord of American religious life today, many different groups claim to be Christ-centered, some of them seemingly at odds with the values that we embrace. To avoid confusion, it may be best just to steer clear of that phrase altogether. Besides, uh, religious claims are cheap. Rather than saying we are Christ-centered, we should just live it. Or we should allow the surrounding four core values to explain what the phrase means. Now, I happen to, um, to disagree with those concerns, but I understand them as a principled and, and reasonable. The attitude that, that troubles me most, however, is the notion that we should, should not emphasize the Christ-centered part of our core values because the public use of religious language is inappropriate and maybe even embarrassing. Those other four core values are okay because any rational person could support them, but public talk about Christ is naive and simplistic, something that critical thinkers have outgrown. If you want to be personally Christ-centered, fine, but outside of chapel, you should keep religious themes to yourself. This morning, I'd like to offer some reflections on why I think that being a Christ-centered college matters. Why being Christ-centered is crucial to our life together. Why it belongs at the core of our public identity. My appeal this morning is quite explicitly uh, to Christians. That is, to those of you who at some point in your life have made a public commitment to Christ and would, would check a Christian uh, in the box in the form that asks for religion. But I would welcome uh, insights and perspectives of those of you who are listening in who don't claim to be Christian, and I hope that all of you will hear these words as an invitation to uh, ongoing conversation, not an attempt to end the discussion. On the surface, the question as to whether a church-related college should be Christ-centered seems almost silly. Uh, after all, we require uh, all uh, faculty to profess the Christian faith. We ask all students to take classes in Bible and religion. Of course, we should be Christ-centered. And yet the question of what it means to identify yourself with Jesus uh, has never been simple. Already in the Gospel of Matthew, we read that quite early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus gathered his disciples around him, the inner circle, and he asked them a very fundamental question. He says, well, who do people say that I am? His disciples report, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet, you're a, a good man, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, gets it right. 
You are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Great. The problem is solved. The identity crisis is averted. Peter, you're the rock on whom I'm going to build my church. Now it's clear Jesus is the Christ. But as you all know, the question of identity is never resolved that easily. Coming up with a phrase is not that hard. In fact, uh, confessing the name of Christ is actually uh, pretty simple. I'm guessing that many of you here this morning uh, have done that much. The bigger challenge is figuring out what it actually means to confess Jesus as the Christ. If you're going to be Christ-centered, then just who is the Christ that is at the core of your identity? Because time is short, let me offer one very uh, compressed perspective on what I think it could mean to confess Christ in our context. One possible way of thinking about what it means to be a Christ-centered campus. I'd like to do that by proposing two basic convictions that may at first seem to utterly contradict each other. On the one hand, to say with Peter that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, is to make an audacious claim about Jesus uh, and the nature of reality itself. To be Christ-centered, I think, is to publicly affirm that in Jesus we have the fullest revelation of the character and the will of God that all of the power and the authority, the sovereignty, the holiness of God are revealed in this person. He is the image of the invisible God, we read in Colossians, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in the heavens and upon earth, things visible and things invisible, whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, he is before all things by him all things were made to exist. Jesus, we read elsewhere in scripture, brings life itself. His resurrection testifies to the power of life over death, to the possibility that love is actually more powerful than evil. In him all of creation is held together. These are not uh, small claims. They're claims that uh, go beyond the accident of culture. They're bigger than my gender, race, ethnic identity, denominational commitments, my status, or any other category that we use to bring order to our lives. To be Christ-centered, I would suggest, is not primarily an intellectual proposition. It's not one more theory to be tossed into the mix. It's not uh, a nervous nod toward the inherited habits of a religious tradition. It's an all-encompassing, fundamental, life-changing claim on my deepest allegiance and identity. It's the beginning point for making sense of everything else in life. Now, all that I know sounds pretty uh, audacious. 
and maybe even scary. So let me propose my second basic conviction that is woven through all of these same passages of Scripture. The Christ who is Lord over the universe is also the same Jesus who came to this earth as a baby, born to poor parents in a provincial town in Palestine. The Christ we claim at the center of our identity suffered all of the physical pain, the temptations, the fears, the emotional anguish that you and I do. This is the same Christ who told his followers that if they wanted to be great, they needed to be as vulnerable and dependent and trusting as children. To a crowd uh, eager to see a celebrity, he said that the truly blessed were the gentle and the poor and the peacemakers and the meek, those who are timid and shy, standing at the edges. The Christ we claim hung out with lepers and foreigners, washed his disciples' feet, allowed himself to be tortured, and left behind followers who insisted on publicly preaching Christ crucified even though they knew it would be heard as a stumbling block to Jews and as foolishness to the Greeks. This is a power made perfect in weakness. What does it mean to be a Christ-centered college? If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, wrote Paul, then be like-minded with him. Have the same love. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. I think a Christ-centered college points to a community actively living into the mystery captured in the text from Philippians. Let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in that very yielding, God exalted him to the highest place. Why is this important? How might this have consequences for how we live together out of a commitment to being Christ-centered? Let me offer a few suggestions, uh, knowing that some of these uh, might be controversial. First, I think a commitment to being Christ-centered in this way creates the possibility of genuine dialogue with people of other religious traditions. I know this seems counterintuitive. I've heard the argument that the language of Christ-centered can only get in the way of respectful conversations with people of other religions. Yet, far from being generous or enlightened, 
I think that what often passes for open-minded toleration is actually deeply offensive to other religions and to Christianity itself because it implies that religious commitments are not really about truth but are all just personal opinions. We know how to live together with differences of opinions. You like Lucky Charms, I like Super Sugar Crisp. You're a Yankee fan, I like the Cubs. And so we think we're doing everyone a favor by insisting from the outset that conversations about faith be on the same level as the relative merits of breakfast cereal. This is a tolerance that begins by demanding that all parties agree that nothing of ultimate importance is at stake in the conversation. Yet I think it is precisely because we confess publicly that something of ultimate importance is at stake, that we're talking about truth, not merely accidents of culture, questions of taste, that a Christ-centered campus will be in a much better position to have serious, consequential conversations with committed Muslims, Buddhists, and atheists who incidentally also happen to think that something important is at stake here, who also think that religious convictions actually matter. But because the truth of our Christ-centered campus, because the truth that we proclaim is grounded in a God who is revealed most fully in the form of a servant, who comes in a posture of vulnerability, of love, of compassion, and empathy. Our conversation partners don't need to worry that we're going to mistreat them if they disagree with us. Indeed, the very integrity of our commitment to being Christ-centered hinges on our ability to engage fundamental differences in a loving, gracious, and compassionate way. That's what the compassion is. It's empathetically entering into the passions of somebody else. Even, and I would say, especially if we disagree. In a similar way, being more explicit about the Christ-centered core of our identity could transform the way we talk about other issues that matter deeply to us. Consider, for example, our ongoing conversations about multiculturalism or racism or sexism. Clearly, Goshen College has a commitment to be culturally inclusive. Clearly, we want to challenge racism and the chauvinism against women that's pervasive in our culture. Yet I think we often engage these convictions with a certain uh, naivete about the logic of our arguments and motivations. From the perspective of someone in power, talk about multiculturalism, racism, and sexism is almost always heard as an appeal to relinquish power. Because I am white, wealthy, and a male, the argument goes, I have an unfair amount of status and power. If the world is going to be set right, power should be distributed more equitably and I should change my habits and my hearts in such a way as to give away some of the excess power that I now hold. But why people in power 
ask themselves, why would I want to give up power? Because of the goodness of human nature? If we were good by nature, we would have resolved the problems of racism and sexism long ago. Because of an appeal to reason? The golden rule makes a whole lot more sense to those without power than it does to those with power? Or is it really an appeal to fear? If you don't voluntarily give up power, we will drag you down or see you in court. No. If we at Goshen College care deeply about the issues of racism and sexism, about the mistreatment of minorities of any sort, why wouldn't it be obvious that we would make the appeal first and foremost from an explicitly Christ-centered perspective that calls on me, a professing Christian, to change my mind and my heart because we all, all of us, are made in the image of God. Because we, all of us, are dependent on God's love and mercy and grace. Because Christians are called to imitate the spirit of Christ by honoring the dignity of every person because true power is made perfect in weakness. The same logic holds for a commitment to nonviolence and peacemaking. I don't teach my children that they should love their enemies because it's heroic or a clever political strategy or because I'm a liberal or even because I'm a Mennonite. No, I hope that they will love their enemies because that's exactly how God treated us. Because God loved us, as we read in Romans 5, God loved us while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God. And I testify, I bear witness to the amazing, deep power and graciousness of God's love only to the extent that I begin to treat other people in the same way that God treated me. How would Christians witness to the world otherwise? This is not about defending tradition, but an invitation to the joy of a rightly ordered life, grounded in God's abundant love for us and expressed in a posture of love for others and for ourselves as bearers of the image of God. I recognize that not all members of the Goshen College community uh, claim to be Christians. I can respect that. It doesn't hurt to find secondary arguments for being racially inclusive or affirming multiculturalism. It's fine to make arguments about the possible effectiveness of nonviolent policies but these should be secondary arguments, not the central focus of our conversation. I also recognize that Christians on campus won't all agree on these matters. I can respect that as well. The current uh, conversations about the, the national anthem is a good case in point. But if we disagree, then let the conversation unfold as discernment about our differing understandings of the claims of Christ in our lives. And if we disagree, let us do so in a spirit of humility and love. Early in September, I was invited to speak at a conference organized by a group of theological, uh, theology faculties in Germany 
on the question of religion and politics. Secular governments throughout Europe are struggling right now with the question of public religion. Private religion is fine, of course, but what happens when some religious groups do not agree that religion is only a private matter? What happens when religious groups wish to dress in a distinctive way or issue public calls to prayer? Is it possible to think of public forms of religion that don't threaten the rights or well-beings of those who don't share the faith? What would a Christian model of such a witness look like? And then the organizers thought of the Amish and the public expression of forgiveness following the Nickel Mine Massacre. And they thought of the Anabaptist Mennonite tradition. And they asked if I would come and talk about the possibility of a faith that is both public and nonviolent. What an interesting gift to return to Europe five centuries after the Anabaptist movement to bear testimony to the possibility of a nonviolent witness to the truth. At the heart of our core values is a wonderfully complicated claim that we are a Christ-centered campus. My hope for Goshen College is that we can make good on that claim with confidence, publicly naming Christ as the orienting center of our life, while at the same time recognizing that the truth we proclaim calls us to a posture of humility and graciousness that welcomes the stranger, that honors the image of God in every person here, that is committed to healing broken relationships and is ready to live into a power that is made perfect in weakness. Amen. Please stand and join us in singing number 54 in the purple Sing the Story book. The words will also be displayed on the screen. Longing for life. Oh, the green book, sorry, I was wrong, 54. Truth returns to 
Join me in prayer. Oh God, as we go from this place, we pray that you would be our light, that you would lead us from death into life, from falsehood to truth. Lead us from despair into hope, from fear into trust. Lead us, O Christ, from hate to love, from war to peace. Let your peace fill our hearts, our world, our universe. Amen. Go in the peace of Christ.